Good morning, church. I will not say howdy. Stop it. Uh, all right, so it's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, my name is Dirk. I'm one of the pastors here, and today we have Isaiah 25. So we are getting close to the halfway mark in the book. You would have thought we would have been three years in by now, but hey, we are moving right along. Uh, so to recap, last week and the chapters in the last few weeks, we've gotten into a lot of judgment and oracles against the nations uh, around Israel and Judah and also Israel and Judah themselves. And where it is in the timeline, Assyria is still coming. They haven't surrounded Jerusalem yet. That will be in uh, a handful of chapters ahead. But today, we get to feast. And as I have been um, learning how to preach and how to shepherd, how to be a pastor, um, I've come across something from a, a much older, wiser uh, preacher and teacher uh, named Jack Deere, and he says this, before we hear a command to follow, we need a person to enjoy. So before I give any kind of practical application, or if I get into any instructions from the Lord about what to do, you need to actually enjoy him first. Because if I just circumvent enjoying the person, if we circumvent that, we're just going to be heaping law. And when we don't enjoy the person and we heap on law, we're in condemnation. We're led into guilt. We're not led into freedom. We're actually led into further bondage. And so I need that today. And we can ask ourselves the question before we get into the, the bulk of the text. Do we have vibrant communion with God? Are we experiencing and involved in mutually equipping community? And are we involved in bold and risky mission? See, the thing is, whether you answer yes or no, or some nuanced in between, we still need to enjoy Jesus. We still need to enjoy Jesus. And to be honest, like my week has been filled with loads of anger and anxiety and fear and sadness. So I'm in this with you. I'm not in this as one who has accomplished it and has achieved it and I'm tugging you along. I am in it with you. So when we look at the text, we see God promising a lot of things. We see on one section of this that there's destruction that he is promising. So this is in reference to previous oracles against the nations, what God has already done. He says that he's going to bring destruction to neighboring nations. He will subdue the noise of the enemy. So the songs that they have against Israel, against Judah, the taunts that they have against the Lord will be silenced. Because even now in our time, we look back and even look in the news that Assyria is not a nation anymore. Babylon isn't a nation anymore. The songs aren't there. 
Other nations have taken their place and they have their own songs, but what God has already done then is put it to, put it to an end. But then there's the things that God will do. And he says that their pride will be brought low. How they view their identity and their sense of value will not justify them in the end, regardless of how big and how powerful their empires are. It's not going to save them. Regardless of the skill of their hands, the things, the fortifications that they've built up, all of the cities, all of the walls, it's not going to save them. But on the other half, you see God's provision. And again, you see things that God has done. He has been a stronghold. He has provided protection to the poor and needy from the enemy. He has provided shelter for his people. He has provided them rest during the storms and has given them sanctuary. He has given them his presence. But then you also see in the larger chunk what God will one day do. Now, this is mainly in reference to the day of the Lord, the last day, when all things will be complete, all things will be um, revealed. And we get to experience hints of that here and there, but this is in reference to the last day. So let's just take this in. We see that salvation will be at hand. For God's people to see finally the Redeemer face to face. And all things will be made new. And as Isaiah says, the, the wait is over. There's no countdown clock. It's present forever. It's a time of celebration. It's a time to rejoice. It says, death will be swallowed up by the Lord. And I think it's encouraging, but the hard thing with it is we don't have a grid for that. I mean, we can, we can believe that because it's true what God is going to do, but we don't have a grid to imagine for ourselves a reality where death is not a thing. From the day that we're born, we move closer and closer to death. It doesn't matter how old we are. It's a part of our reality, but, here's, but God's saying the curse of death is going to end. The veil that's over the people will be removed. It will be swallowed up. It will no longer be a weight upon us. And he says our tears will be wiped away. And, and I, just trying to imagine that, where every single one of God's children, us, will experience the nearness and comfort of God on a one-on-one -on -one basis. He will wipe away every single tear. And our reproach our shame, our guilt, disapproval, condemnation will be removed. But then is the feast. And the feast, as Isaiah describes it, 
will be of rich food. It will be lavish. It will be an imitation and a reflection of God's graciousness towards us. It's going to be satisfying. It's going to be over-the-top, nutritious, and overflowing. And it's stunningly beautiful. Partly and mainly because it's from Jesus, and he's the focal point of this. But as we look down the table and around it, we see that it's all peoples, all nations, all faces represented at that table. The purpose, we have to ask ourselves, why does, why does God give this prophecy to Isaiah then? And why is it any relevant now? Well, one, we have to see that with Assyria coming, they know Assyria is coming. It's to build up the faith for his people of what, what God has promised to do now and then. And it's also to give hope not just for the present, but for the future of what God will one day usher in. And then finally, it's also for the people of God to hear that, to receive that, and for that to transform and change how they live. It's supposed to change the way that they act towards the foreigner. It's supposed to change how they act towards their neighbor. It's supposed to change them in a way that they respond and live and act in a way of love and service. That would bring glory to God, not to themselves. But then we also have to ask ourselves, how, in light of that, how has that actually impacted us? Because I think a lot of us have read this passage before or know passages like this. I think we preached on this two Easter's ago. How has that actually changed the way we live? How do we live in light of that? And so let's examine the church today. And so this isn't just a, you know, let's just be critical of everything the church out there is doing. Talking about us. We're not talking about the liberal or fundamental church down the street that doesn't get it. We're talking about us who think, you know, we have the theology. We have mostly things together. We could get through a lot of stuff, but let's, have, let's do two things here. Issue number one. Jesus provides us a feast, but we provide our own feast, and we feast at other tables that other people have. Psalm 127 says this. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Essentially saying this, like, okay, you can have your city, you can have your walls, you can have watchmen in place, okay? And they can put up the warning when... People are approaching and want to attack the city. But what's the point of a watchman if the army approaching the city is actually greater than the city? The watchman is just going to alert everyone of their impending doom. And in some way, that's going to happen here really soon with Assyria. And the only reason that, that Jerusalem did not get overtaken was because the Lord provided 
So he's saying, what's the point if we have things in place and rely on just those? If they're not going to make a real difference. If we live out of the flesh ourselves, if we trust in our own confidence. Because, church, we get it. We have mostly really good theology for us individually, I think. And Jesus provides us so much, but we still are putting our confidence in other things. I want to focus on two tables today. First, we eat at the table of the American dream. And some of us, depending on what generation, you may have distaste for that title and what that all entails, but it's still something we all take part in. It's all something that we have implemented and conformed to our own destiny, our own fate. Right? Because we have the freedom to have different comforts, to have entertainment, to have toys, to have independence, to have investments, to have resources, to have networks of connections, and to build up our own thing. And what comes of that is that we end up actually valuing the lives we construct over the lives that God has actually called us to. Right, so the hard thing is, like we think, oh, just because this thing was easily accessible, it's what God wanted. That's not what we see in Scripture. Wide is the path to destruction. Easy is the path to destruction. But that's what we go for. It's the path of least resistance. And the issue is, so I'm not against owning a house. I'm not against investment. I don't think God is either. The issue is when our happiness hinges upon that. It's, ha- it's an issue when our happiness is built upon that. Like we can't imagine a functional life without those things. Like if we get laid off. Some of us had in the last few months. But what happens if it's longer than three months? What happens if it goes a year? What happens if the investments tank and we have to start over again? What happens if our friends betray us? Does panic set in just thinking about that? Does it induce rage? Does it induce anxiety? Do those things happen already? Are we living in a place of complete contentment with those things? I would argue no. We still experience anxiety. We still experience those things. We also eat at the table of knowledge. Boy, we love knowing things. We live in a culture that is all about the life hacks, It's about the tricks to make things easier. In some ways, we prefer the short articles and tweets to get our theology instead of actually getting into the Word and praying ourselves. Having other people do the work for us in very concise, uh, very shallow ways. Or we can even, on the flip side, 
submit ourselves to long hours of studying the Bible to get knowledge, but not actually get the relationship with God. We can completely miss it. We can have mountains of knowledge about who God is, about what God has done, about what God will do, and not actually know Him. You get what I'm saying? Like We can know a lot about God without actually knowing Him as a person, as the Redeemer, as the Savior. What does this bring when we are feasting at those tables and others? It's void of life. It's void of an actual deep relationship with God as He intended. It doesn't matter how good your life can look. It is empty. It doesn't matter if you've made your life constructed in so, such a way that it just looks so put together and pristine and theologically correct. Whatever you broadcasted on social media, but you are in debt spiritually and financially maybe. You've been banking on those things. But the thing is, if we've been feasting at those tables, it's not just void of life. It's not just void of, of having you know, a normal life put together in union with God. It's void of worship. It's void of prayer. It's void of scripture. It's void of real community. It's void of discipleship. It's void of evangelism. It's void of mission. It's void of functional theology. It's void of using the gifts that God has given you. It's void of love. It's void of peace. It's void of encouragement. It's void of equipping and purpose and generosity. It's void of serving. It's void of leading people into greater relationship with Jesus. It's void of the fruit of of the Spirit. It's void of grace. The thing is, it doesn't stay truly empty because it's filled with anger. It's filled with lust. It's filled with envy and pride and laziness. James even goes forward to say that it's demonic. Being filled with those things is demonic because it's not agreeing with the Lord. It's agreeing with the enemy. It's siding with the enemy. When we choose to fill ourselves with that. And we've given, uh, we've given plenty of room to it. Uh, issue two, we forget grace, church. Man, I, I think in the last couple weeks, man, I've just struggled with social media. Because I think right now, I'm at 10 seconds before I'm grieved. I'm grieved by the injustice. but I'm grieved more 
at how the family of God interacts with one another and with the world on social media. It's absurd. We can give lip service to grace. And we can spell our knowledge of grace, but it's not an action. It's not the way Jesus has showed us to live. I see the posts. I see the comments. I see the reactions to all the different comments to lift up your tallies. But God knows our thoughts. Right? Because I'm in the place where I'm really tempted to comment and just shut people up. But I don't. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. But I will sit and I will stew and I will think so critically and so angrily towards my brothers and sisters. And God sees that. And and God has clearly said that if we show or if we have thoughts and harbor anger against our brothers and sisters, it's the same as murder. We are murdering each other. God just gave me prepping this week just gave me this picture of of how as Christians when we give into that it's like wolves fighting over roadkill well Jesus has prepared a feast he has provided so much and we have settled for far less but the beauty of the gospel is that God calls for us to return to him even as followers, even as believers. He calls us to return to Him. And so, family, today, we haven't, we need to wake up. And if you don't know Jesus, today is the day to believe. But church, we need to wake up and not fall asleep. Several months ago, I watched this documentary on YouTube called uh, Sheep Among Wolves. It's a part two documentary of a series. It's really long, it's really convicting, and it is very challenging. And it's about the, the, really the explosion of the church movement in Iran in one of the most persecuted areas on the globe. The church is actually exponentially growing. And in one story, this couple goes to the U.S. for whatever reason. They're there for a while. And the wife wants to go back to Iran. She says she wants to go back because she feels herself getting sleepy. Getting sleepy and not focusing on Jesus, not focusing on the gospel because there's so much distractions. There's so much pulling our attention away from Jesus. And she says she wants to go back to persecution. That should say something about where we are. We need to see our fragility. If we even just look at this current year, we're like halfway through, oh boy. 
what is the, the pandemic revealed? In you. What have the racial issues revealed in you? What do the elections reveal in you? Speaking for myself, I am so easily distracted and diverted to fear and diverted to anger and envy. And every new cycle revives it. Every cycle feeds it. And I'm not saying don't watch the news, but don't let it form you. Let the gospel form you. Let Jesus form you instead. And that's what God is calling for us to do. He's calling for us to see Him, to see the King, to open our eyes, to see and behold His glory and wonder, to see His unconditional love for each of us, to see that His grace abounds in every area of life. No matter how far distorted and wicked we think it is, it is not beyond saving. It does not put us outside of God's reach. And the cross serves as that reminder. Church, that's where our brokenness went. That's where our fragility went. That's where our anger, our pride, our laziness, anxiety, that's where all of that went. That's the constant reminder that Jesus became broken so that you could be healed. Jesus was broken so that you would no longer have to live in that brokenness. Jesus was broken so that you would be made whole and filled with his presence. What grace is that? He is patient with us, church, family. He is so patient with us. To know that we have a Father who sees us, saves us, loves us, even before Christ died for us. And said, you are going to be in my family. I'm going to clean you up. And I'm going to make you whole. I'm going to adopt you. And he's going to see it through to the end. He's faithful. And so, the call for today. We need to feast with Jesus. And that looks like friendship. It looks like friendship with God. And that might be a foreign concept to you. But Jesus calls us friends. Near the end of his life, he calls us friends. And we need to see friendship with God and then actually experience that friendship with God in order to see that carrying our crosses is actually desirable. Because if we're not experiencing friendship with God, sacrifice, we'll never do it. Serving, we'll never do it. Leading, we'll never do it. 
all of the things that are void in our life that God is calling us to step into will not happen unless we actually experience friendship with God. So we actually need to treat him and love him as our friend. And so in the last few months, it's different than the way maybe we've treated some Zoom calls. Where God is speaking, God is showing us what he's calling us into. And, and for us to not mute the microphone and to not turn off the video and leave the room. God is challenging us and he's loving us like a father. So we need to receive that and we need to walk with him, okay? It's a picture of friendship. Recently, during quarantine, I read uh, the book called The Insanity of God. And if you want to read a book apart from the Bible that will uh, change your life and the way that you interact with anything, read that book. It's a dangerous book. But in, in that book, there is a story about a man named Dimitri in Russia. And he's been planting churches for quite some time. Uh, it's been more of a house church movement. So he has this house church that starts with a few people, and it grows to about 150 in a very short amount of time, and this is during Soviet Russia. And so the authorities repeatedly come and say, you need to shut this down or we will arrest you and this thing will be no more. They keep meeting and Dimitri gets arrested in front of his family, in front of his wife and children in church and is hauled off to prison. In that prison, he is with 1,500 other inmates, none of whom are Christians. And he has no community, no Bible, no instruments, No technology to communicate to the outside world. At one point, he is nearly forced to recant his faith. But the night before, uh, he, well, the authorities had already told him that they had killed his wife and kids, that he should just give up and not follow Jesus anymore. And he was very close. So the night before, he could audibly hear his wife and children and family praying for him thousands of miles away. He goes through rough winters and in uh, a cell that is without heat, poor food conditions, poor living conditions. But every morning, he would stand up in his solitary cell, stand up from his bed, face the east, and he would sing what he would call a heart song. His own song that he had written to the Lord, and would sing it morning after morning. And all of the prisoners would ridicule him, would mock him, would make noise, would throw their own feces at him while he did that. One day he found a piece of paper and a pencil in this prison unlikely to ever find something like that. And he goes to his cell and he writes down every scripture, every passage, every story, every song that he could remember. Wrote it down, pasted it on the wall, and that was his devotion to God. The guards see that. And they go to execute him. So they're hauling him off, getting dragged down the corridor. 
in that moment, all of the 1,500 prisoners who aren't Christians stand up, face the east, and sing his song. Needless to say, the guards were shocked. They dropped him, and they asked, who are you? He said, I'm a son of God, and Jesus is his name. So they take him back to his cell, and he's eventually released to go back home to his family and kids. That was after 17 years. In 17 years, my daughter will be moved out. I will have missed so much life with you if that happened to me. But I know that Dimitri feasted. He didn't have all of these things that we have to commune with God, to use, to sing, to have instruments, to have an actual Bible. Yet he feasted with Jesus. And so that's family. That's what God is calling us to do, to think and live radically, to feast together while we still can. To not neglect the people that God has put in our lives. Specifically towards those we don't gravitate towards. In this room. To seek out people here. To love on them like Jesus. To serve them like Jesus. To be vulnerable with them. To encourage them. To love them. To serve them. Having intentional conversations about the Lord. Just go for it. It also looks like inviting loss. And I know things are weird with the pandemic. And so be aware of that. Be wise with that. But the parable of the banquet in Luke 14 at least shows us the posture to have. That may not look like for you to go to the highways, because many people don't travel on the highways on foot, but to look at your neighborhood, to look at the people in your lives. And so maybe that doesn't look like having a feast indoors. Maybe it's something in the yard. Maybe it's something, just be creative. And to invite the lost into your life, into your home. And love them. I don't want to keep doing the same thing. Where every week it's just it's just a, a bunch of us Christians. Man, we, we got in the Bible, but did we actually grow? Did we actually reach the lost? I don't want to look back on my life and think, gosh, there was so much I could have done. I squandered it. Neighbors that live 10 feet away from my house, I will not go talk to. We know that if we do this, things are going to have to change. 
things will have to change in the way we live. It's like if all of us here, if we said, we will adopt a child, something's got to change. We've got to baby-proof the house. Our schedules need to be reoriented. We're going to have to buy more food. We might have to get a second job. But it's all supposed to be motivated out of our friendship with God. And if that love is deep and that friendship is deeper than any earthly friendship, we will do anything, anything, so that Jesus would be present and the kingdom would spread in our neighborhoods, guys. I'm, doing, I'm done doing the same old thing week after week. I want to be following Jesus. I want to go for it. I want to be challenged. I want us to be challenged. I want us to imitate the Lord and for us to provide a feast for the people in our lives and for that to be made and for Jesus to be made much of in those. So let's let's challenge ourselves. Let's be challenged by the Lord. Let's respond. Band, you can come on up. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Out of joy, not out of obligation, not out of duty, but out of joy. I feel that tension, guys. I feel the tension of just how I've been living, but also I know where Jesus is calling me to go. So we go to him in prayer, not trying to figure it out on my own. I don't want us to do that. How is he calling us individually to do that? What is he calling for us to change? So let's pray feverishly, expectantly, Let's seek him together, family. And we have communion today for the first time in a while. And so we take the cup, we take the bread, and we remember that sacrifice, that sacrifice that motivates us as an act of worship. And we're going to continue worshiping and giving praise to the Lord and what he's calling us to do, to shout it, to sing it, to love him and to love the lost. It's time. Time's now. So let me pray and let's do it. Lord, we don't want to be eating the bread of anxious toil. We don't want to be working and living out of our own strength. We want to follow you. We want to live for you. We want people in our lives to love you. We want to love you more. We want to be in a true friendship with you. So Lord, would you show us now what that would look like? Call us forward, Lord. Let us not go to just action first, but let's look to your faithfulness and your love and your grace and let that change us first. 
Do a work in us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit and boldness to go out and to proclaim your excellencies. You are worthy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.